G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And we're back with another deep dive into Genesis 3. But before we get into all that, we have something that we want to say yeah that's right chris we're feeling a little festive today and even though i've got bronchitis ain't nobody got time for that because we're celebrating 50 episodes of the podcast since we launched about this time last year coincidentally this also marks two years since the launch of the book that started it all which is of course answers two giant questions and as usual if you haven't already got yourself a copy of that you can still grab them on amazon in paperback or Kindle format. Yes, uh, so happy anniversary to us and uh, congratulations to you, Tim, because I know it's no uh, easy feat to write a book. So well done, my friend. Um, But before we get out to business uh, this week with our regular program, I thought we might feature some of the feedback that we've uh, received from people who listen to the show, which we're always appreciative to receive. Um, We'll start with a note that we got from a listener. His name is Bob and he is from Wisconsin in the United States. And he says, hey, TJ and Chris, just wanted to thank you again and encourage you in your ministry. I learned from Dr. Heiser the importance of understanding the Bible's authors and their primary audiences in their cultural and historical settings. He also taught me that it's okay to rearrange the dots and work to find an understanding of Scripture that is supported by Scripture and not filtered through a creed or confession. Obviously, his divine counsel worldview is an amazing hermeneutic that helps to answer many problem passages in the Bible. Your emphasis on the literary aspects of interpretation have been very refreshing. In fact, I'm talking effervescent. Moving away from the over-literal approach to the word has been a great release. Dr. Heiser encourages us to rearrange the dots. I find the Blurry Creatures podcast cautionary pursuit about folks who just start rearranging those dots in whatever order seems the most ear-tickling and weird. I appreciate how you still follow the rules of the text and intertextuality and rearrange dots into a comprehensive and compelling story that remains faithful to the text. You don't try to synthesize ancient texts with futuristic speculations like others such as Derek Gilbert or Tim Alberino that will sell lots of books but do violence to the word. You stay so close to the text, I can smell its aftershave. Anyway, all that to say, I really appreciate your approach. I look forward to each podcast. They actually affect my mood. They maketh my heart glad. Thank you, brothers. And thank you, Bob, for those kind words. Yeah, that's really awesome. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Also, I'll pass along congratulations from Pastor Ryan of the Warnborough Community Church right here in my hometown. Ryan says, congratulations on 50 episodes. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. We greatly appreciate it. Also, we have a quick note from Stephanie from Utah uh, in the USA, obviously, who says she's really enjoying the podcast so far as well. And we've had an awful lot of people over the last 12 months sending in questions and looking for advice. It's been a great pleasure to dive in and attempt to find some answers for them. And we've had a lot of appreciation come our way for that work. I would just like to say before we wrap this up and get on with the show that all the glory, all the honour and all the praise that we've received belongs to the Lord our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word of the Father. Amen. And speaking of the word of God, let's have a reading for this week. This is Genesis 3, verses 16 to 18. 
He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. All right. One of the first things you notice about this passage is that when God speaks to the woman, one element of the formula in these expressions is missing. When God speaks to the serpent, he says, because you have done this, and he does the same thing when he speaks to the man, because you've done this, God does not give his pronouncement to the woman in light of something she's done. Mm. So if this is not a consequence for knowingly breaking a rule and committing some kind of sin, then what exactly is it? I'm going to suggest that what we have here is a kind of teaching moment where God reminds the woman that humans are called to a higher calling than the animals. Human beings have the responsibility of being the body of God in the world, and as such, they must ensure that they never fall into the trap of behaving like animals. And you might wonder why I'm talking about animals here when this is all about the woman and specifically in the context of childbearing. Well, let's break it down. As far as this particular narrative is concerned, we have no information to suggest that she had ever borne children prior to this point, and that leaves us wondering what to do with this language of increasing or multiplying pain in childbirth. If she hasn't had children before, how does she know whether or not it's painful? Remembering that a close reading of the text does not rule out the idea of she and her partner actually having parents. Does it mean that her childbearing will be harder than that of her own mother? And we have no information to illustrate that point, so it's not likely to be the focus of this author. But what we do know is that all of the various creatures that God has made are capable of reproducing. Animals seem to give birth quite easily as a general rule and with a minimum of pain, if any. Yeah, and that's not something uh, we're usually aware of or think about as humans. Mm, Biologically speaking, the reason that humans endure so much pain while giving birth is because of our anatomy and the way that our body's constructed. We walk upright and have only a narrow space between our legs, and that's just an easy observation. You don't need a PhD to recognise that. So when we think about it this way, it would seem that all humans and even the ancestors of early humans would also have dealt with a similar amount of pain in childbearing just because of the way that our bodies are constructed. On this basis, it makes no sense to appeal to theories suggesting that childbirth was painless until the fall of man. But when we consider this as a teaching moment where God is reminding the woman of her special status as an image-bearing human, we see that God is making use of a naturally occurring phenomenon by attaching it to a lesson to be remembered. We're going to see other examples of this, probably most notably being the rainbow when we come to it in Genesis 9. True, and that makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. This has the effect of ensuring that the woman remembers her uniqueness as a representative of God and thus the precious nature of human life is brought to the forefront. The woman is reminded at birth and every moment afterwards that her seed will perpetuate more just like herself and she will experience what it is like to bring something into the world and have it so easily drawn into traps and errors and pain and suffering just as she was. But we have to remember that God isn't blaming her for being deceived. We already saw that in the fact that God doesn't start his pronouncement of destiny toward her with the words, because you have done this. Again, this is a reminder that when you see these things happen, you'll know and remember this important point. God did not make us to behave like the animals, but to be his representatives. God is not only refusing to blame the woman for what has happened, He's also not punishing her, and I think this is a really important point to remember because so often we hear people say that God must be cruel if he made childbearing so painful. 
Or they say, if only Eve hadn't sinned, then giving birth wouldn't hurt. But these kind of statements seem to be more a case of us trying to make God in our image than a serious attempt to understand the text. When God gave man the task of naming the animals, the main thing that the man learned was that none of the animals were like him, and none were suitable for helping him in the task of representing God in the world. Now the woman must learn the same lesson, and it's really important that we take this out of any kind of a context of punishment. We've already been told that this is not a punishment, and if we continue to see it that way, then God punishes the woman again every time she gives birth and punishes every woman in the world every time they bear a child. Remember that we're reading an archetypal story. So this is a lesson that we are perpetually reminded of rather than a punishment that we have to receive again and again. Yes, and I know I already said it, but this view just makes so much more sense than a lot of other views uh, out there. Imagine believing that people today are still getting punished for the sins of a couple of people who lived 6,000 or more years ago. That's, uh, That's pretty harsh. Yeah. So the lesson for the woman in this story is that God has called humanity to a higher purpose than just self-gratification and self-interest. Part of the function of womanhood is the production of offspring and care for them. And I think that this may be what is behind that curious phrase in 1 Timothy 2.15, where it says that women shall be saved through childbearing. That's not about salvation from the consequences of sin. That's about Christ's body continuing to function as God has ordained to maintain order among his people. I wasn't going to comment on that passage in 1 Timothy, but what I'll say for now is that in light of recent heresies confronting the church at the time this letter was written, it seemed to Paul that it would be best to instruct the women in the congregation to keep themselves occupied with good works rather than teaching. Paul uses the order of creation to give men the priority over women with regard to instruction. And since this is what we've received in Scripture, we really have no choice but to respect that tradition. We really can't argue with his reasoning that the woman was deceived in the first place. Earlier we talked about the woman being created as an equal to the man, but also one who faces him as an opposite. And I think this is an example of where we see that functionality in play. Notice in that passage, Paul refers to Adam and Eve, then Adam again. But when he mentions the deception, he says the woman rather than Eve. We've seen other examples of Paul's use of Genesis 1 to 3 as archetypal narrative. So the choice of wording here is deliberate and intended to convey a general statement concerning women. And that means that men have a particular responsibility to ensure that they are not misleading women. Getting back to Genesis 3, this next part of our reading is particularly challenging. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, if you thought that this verse gives instruction for women to stay with abusive men, we've got news for you. It's not that. Absolutely, and I'm sure that comes as a relief for those people who needed to hear that. But how are we supposed to understand that particular passage? Well, to give us a bit of an idea of how we should read this, we should probably notice that the same kind of expression appears again in Genesis 4, 7. And that says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So again, we have this pairing of desire and rule. It seems a little easier to understand in Cain's situation. Sin desires Cain. Cain has to rule over sin. And how does that work? Sin is personified in this narrative. So this is a battle for control between two parties. Cain's responsibility is to take control over sin, not to dominate it, kill it or destroy it, but simply to maintain order and good function in his life 
by resisting the attempts of sin to control him. If we apply the same reasoning to the situation presented between the man and the woman, we have a scenario where the woman partakes of the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and she inadvertently puts herself in the position of dispensing it to her husband, which makes her an authority over him and his go-to source of wisdom. So what the serpent has done here is upended creation order by placing priority on the woman. And yet the woman, being quite unaware of that scheme, does not come under blame or punishment. And I think that's a good reminder for men to not look down upon women for ending up in that position. God put creation order back in its place by affirming the authority through priority of the man, which brings with it a responsibility on the man to use that authority correctly. This is not a license to mistreat women. Verse 17, and he, that is God, said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Now in verse 17, God addresses the man and the primary point is that the man has already received the commandment from God and yet he went against it in response to his wife. We have in the text, because you listened, which functions the same way as we tend to speak to children as parents or perhaps as a teacher to a student. To listen doesn't just mean to hear, but it means to take it to heart and do it. When we give a child an instruction and they don't do it, we say you didn't listen, which is to say you heard what I said, but you didn't do it. So listening to the woman means doing what she said instead of doing what God said. God comes first and his instruction comes first. And the man is to weigh up anything else that he's given by anyone else in light of the priority of God's word. And in this respect, the man has failed. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Why does it say that the ground is cursed because of the man? I've always wondered that. Why not just curse Adam? Poor ground. What did the ground do? Remember when we talked about curses and blessings last time and the way that they work? God doesn't change those pronouncements of destiny. He doesn't have to. The ground isn't a person. It doesn't have feelings or a soul or something like that. It doesn't hurt the ground to be cursed. So the punishment that God gives the man doesn't negate the destiny he was given, but it does make it more difficult. By cursing the ground, God shows the man that reality of life outside of the garden is not going to be anything like the good life he had in Eden. In the garden, the man only had to reach out his hand and take anything he wanted to eat. And everything was good for him except for the one thing that was forbidden. But on the outside... He's going to have to work hard to find anything that's good to eat. He was used to a garden of delight, but now he's going to have to adapt to a harsh world full of pain and discomfort. I probably shouldn't have to say this, but I will anyway. The curse upon the ground is a pronouncement of destiny, not a change in nature. That's what curses are. They determine what a person or a thing is going to experience in the future. Curses don't change fig trees into thorn bushes. Remember that God planted the garden. The rest of the world was not a garden. So it doesn't change from being a garden into being a wilderness. Instead, as we read in Genesis 1, the whole world was a wilderness until God planted a garden. But the blessing that was given to the man was to have dominion over the earth. And in the instruction to go forth and multiply, we see a direction to basically take the example of Eden and spread it across the earth. And that's the good rule of God over the world expressed through humanity. Not some kind of a charge to go and plant fruit trees all over the planet. The garden would always be the garden, and the land outside the garden would remain a wilderness. We can forget the fanciful notions of everything outside of the garden turning into some kind of desolate waste as a result of God speaking these words. 
God's pronouncement basically reflects the realities of living outside of proximity to God. This is the reality that everybody outside of the garden was already experiencing. So you're saying that when your toast falls off your plate, it lands with the jam stuck on the floor, you don't get to say, well, that's what happens when we live in a fallen world. Or like when I'm moving furniture and I stub my uh, pinky toe against the corner of the coffee table, I can't console myself by thinking that this never would have happened in the Garden of Eden. So do you mean to tell me that in the garden your spare chain would still fall between the cushions and somehow end up inside the couch? Mate, I don't care if it's like rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you're already there. Or a black fly in your Chardonnay. None of those things are ironic and none of them are the result of the fall. We seem to be incapable of imagining that God could create a world in which ordinary stuff happens. We want our idea of perfection. And in our perfect world, nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets sick and nothing ever goes wrong. Nothing's difficult, everything's free, and things always work out the way we like. We're just like the woman, looking for that easy path to the good life. Did we ever stop to think that the serpent's offer to the woman would have been of absolutely no value if everything in the world was already perfect according to this ideal that we all imagine? Did we stop to think that perhaps temptation doesn't work if you don't want the thing you're being tempted with, if you don't feel like you need it somehow? We need to let go of this idea that Eden was a perfect environment. I mean, I'm sure that Eden was absolutely awesome. Don't get me wrong. But what made it so great was the fact that God was there. Second to that, the great appeal of Eden was the absence of sin, which, of course, is what the man and the woman messed up. No thanks to the serpent. None of this means that the man and the woman in the garden couldn't possibly have wanted things to be different to what they were. And it's blindingly obvious that the woman felt like she needed to make some changes. I know I'm tipping some sacred cows here, but we really need to stay true to the text and stop importing all these Greek philosophies and Gnosticism and whatever else has crept in over time. But what about uh, more serious life-changing things? What about disease and injuries, all kinds of illnesses? Could those things still have existed in Eden? Well, being realistic about it and going by what's in the text, there's nothing to say that those realities of life couldn't have existed as part of ordinary life. Plants rely on a cycle of death and disease and decay in order for new life to be able to grow. What do you need a tree of life for if there's no such thing as ageing and illness and decay and death? It's funny, though, how we tend to think about those things like death and disease as far as they impact humans. We don't really think about plants and little creatures. We try to imagine only nice things would happen to animals that we like, such as dogs and horses. But nobody's interested in cockroaches and mosquitoes and viruses and their role in life in Eden. I'm kind of provoking people here. I, I want them to say, yeah, but it's a fallen world. That's why we have cockroaches and mosquitoes and viruses. Because I'm challenging that thinking. You don't get to just blame the fall for every aspect of life in this world that you don't like. These things, functioning correctly, are necessary to life. But there's one major difference, and I'm going to suggest that it's the same reason why you didn't mention death in that list of horrible things that can happen to people. God is our healer. God is the creator and the sustainer of our lives. That tree of life is connected intimately with God's presence. And the difference, as we've said before, between life inside and outside of the garden is access to that tree, to the very presence of our creator in his fullness. If anything went wrong with anyone in the Garden of Eden, they only have to draw near to God and be healed. Yeah, that's a really beautiful thought, isn't it? Sure is. So I'm not suggesting that anything was wrong with the garden that God planted. This goes back to the idea that I brought up earlier when we were talking about creation. God is free to create things any way that he wants to. 
And his idea of what constitutes a good creation doesn't have to conform to our ideals of perfection. God didn't even say it was perfect. He just said it was good. And as I say quite frequently on this podcast, the purpose of bearing God's image, as far as it concerns us, is so that we can continue the good work that God started. So if we could dispense with the idea that God's idea of good has to equal our idea of perfection, we might just get a bit closer to understanding that the temptation of the serpent actually had some weight and things could have been easier for the man and the woman theoretically. But the easy way isn't necessarily the good way, which is exactly what Eve discovered when uh, she took the forbidden fruit. Yeah, that's right. And we might be thinking about this in light of the painful toil that humans have to go through in order to make a living outside of the Garden of Eden. It'd be easy to think that Adam and Eve had never sinned and everything would be easy for us, but we need to resist this constant temptation to push it back to two other people, two different individuals, two people who are not us, two other people who are responsible for our situation. We keep forgetting this is not a story about two people. The story of Eden is about all of us. As I've been saying now, since we started Genesis 2, the reason we all have to work hard is because there's a distance between ourselves and God. Back in Eden, everything was easy, but as soon as that separation between God and man entered the equation, life became hard work. It's our sin that made life hard. Ours. Stop looking at Adam and Eve like everything's their fault. This is the story of all of us. Don't forget that Adam and Eve were the only two people in the garden while everybody else was outside working hard. Painful struggles of everyday life weren't news to them. I realise that a lot of this stuff for some of us is going to be hard to swallow because many of us were brought up in a tradition that just said in a nutshell that everything was perfect until Eve ate the apple and then God came along and went poof and everything changed. God cursed the world and made everything horrible and then we wonder why we find ourselves 20, 40, 60 years later deconstructing our faith because God seems so mean. This is why you can't stop learning about what the Bible actually says when you grow out of Sunday school. Because that easy reading, face value, safe for kids kind of Bible reading has a tendency to lead to all kinds of errors associated with not grasping the Bible in its context. Well, the good news is that it's never too late to come back to the text, to come back to the Father, and to taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember that it's our sin that separated us from God, and it is God's forgiveness that brings us back to him. Let's move on to something a bit more interesting. This notion of thorns and brambles coming up out of the ground. I think we've already talked enough about the nature of the world outside of Eden and how God didn't just wave a magic wand and transform everything from paradise to wilderness. So by now, we should be well acquainted with the idea that thorn bushes were not a new invention just because God said that. They were always there outside the garden, and the only thing that's new is that this man and this woman would have to deal with them for a change. But I really want to talk about the symbolism associated with thorns because it'll come up again and again as you read your Bible, and you might not notice just how profound and important it is. Yeah, I didn't know there was such a thing as uh, theology of thorns. And uh, may I just uh, say that uh, theology of thorns could be a, a good title for your next book. Oh, there'll be a book one day. I don't, I don't know if I'll call it that. But yeah, uh, I, I have had people ask, you know, when are you going to write another book? I'll, I'll probably have to stop writing podcasts first. I don't have time for anything else. Anyway, I've actually got a bit of a story about thorns from my recent experience. My son likes to ask me to go to the park with him, and I walk while he rides his little bike. And being the kind of dad that likes to give his kids new experiences, I suggested that we go a different way to get to the park. So I'm walking, and he's riding his little push bike, and we come to the end of the street, and a vacant lot beyond that, and further beyond that is the empty strip of land that runs parallel to the highway. Normally, we just stick to the suburban streets and use the designated pathways, but I wanted to try something different. 
So we went along the strip of bushland running parallel to the highway instead. I have a bad feeling about this. Uh, what do I get the feeling that it's going to turn out uh, worse for your uh, kid than it is for you? Yeah, why indeed. So after we've been following the nature strip for some time, we get to a point where there's a footpath that crosses between the suburban back streets and the highway. And I know that this will get us back on our way toward the park. So we started heading that way. We get back on the path and I hear this clicking noise coming from my son's bike. Didn't hear it while he was riding in the dirt. And the clicking noise continues as we go. And eventually my boy says to me that it's really hard riding all this way and he's tired. We haven't really gone far and he's normally full of beans. So I'm just like, ah, don't worry, mate, we'll be there in a minute. So we turn up at the park and he dumps the bike to go and play on the swings and I start looking at this bike. And I notice these things stuck to the tyres all over him. And I pull one off and I realise what they are. They're thorns. We've walked through a patch of double G's out there off the path and collected about 100 prickles in his tyres. Oh, boy. Yeah, for those unacquainted, double G's are the seed pods of a particular weed that we find anywhere that people don't normally go because people generally eradicate them on site. Picture a tiny little pyramid with quarter-inch spikes on each corner, hard like dry wood, and extremely painful if you manage to get them embedded in your feet. Now imagine hundreds and even thousands of them covering the ground. That's what these weeds leave behind. Farmers hate them. Animals drag them around in their fur, and kids get them in their bike tyres. Wow, and uh, you don't normally get prickles in your tyres when you go the normal way and stick to the path, right? So you must feel really bad as a father leading your kid through all the prickles and stuff. Imagine, Noah, that you made a rash decision and popped your kid's bike tyres. And there he was, struggling to ride it with flat tyres. Oh, Dad, riding my bike is so hard. And you're like, toughen up, son. It's good for you. Put in some effort. But, Dad, my tyres are flat. Stop making excuses, kid. You're just being lazy. Am I making you feel bad? Uh, that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah, I felt like a bit of a after that. I think I'm just going to buy him a new bike. Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for that, Chris. I feel better. Um, let's move along. Here's a few scriptures about thorns. Uh, Judges, chapter 8, verse 7. Gideon replied, Very well, when the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmanah over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. And later on in that story, in chapter 8, verse 16, the book of Judges. So he took the elders of the city and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined the men of Sukkot with them. So the first thing to note here is that the thorns and briars come from the wilderness. So that's the land outside of the place where God's people are. Secondly, and really important, the thorns are used for the purpose of discipline. You stories see some connections back to Genesis 3 in this. God's discipline of the man and his wife involved exposing them to a world full of thorns. Now, here's Psalm 118, verses 10 to 14. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So David also talks about thorns, as we could see in this reading from Psalm 118. And again, we have this idea of thorns from outside of the land where God's people are. In this case, specifically the nations around Israel. And we get this idea of being surrounded by thorns. Let's move on to Isaiah. And in Isaiah 32, verses 10 to 16. In a little more than a year, you overconfident ones will shudder, for the grapes will fail, 
and the harvest will not come. Shudder, you complacent ones. Tremble, you overconfident ones. Strip yourselves bare and put sackcloth around your waists. Beat your breasts in mourning for the delightful fields and the fruitful vines. For the ground of my people growing thorns and briars. Indeed, for every joyous house in the jubilant city. For the palace will be deserted, the busy city abandoned. The hill and the watchtower will become barren places forever. The joy of wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Until the spirit from on high is poured out on us. Then the desert will become an orchard, and the orchard will seem like a forest. Then justice will inhabit the wilderness, and righteousness will dwell in the orchard. So here we have Isaiah talking about the trouble that's about to befall Israel. And again, we have this terminology of thorns. This time the thorns invade the land where God's people are, which has become desolate. And Isaiah foretells the restoration of all these things back to the way they're supposed to be. And look at how he does that. He talks about the wasteland becoming a fruitful garden. He talks about the spirit of God poured out upon his people just as the first man received the breath of life. It's like going back to Eden. Yeah, exactly. Except that this is a future Eden. It's an Edenic future rather than an Edenic past. So again in Isaiah, and this time we're talking about the judgment of the nations. And once again, the nations are compared to thorns. Isaiah 33 verses 9 to 12. The land mourns and withers. Lebanon is ashamed and wilted. Sharon is like a desert. Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will rise up, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You will conceive chaff. You will give birth to stubble. Your breath is fire that will consume you. The peoples will be burned to ashes like thorns, cut down and burned in a fire. So there we have these surrounding nations again and uh, the burning to put an end to them. Let's go to Jeremiah now. Jeremiah 4. Verses 1 to 4. If you return, Israel, this is the Lord's declaration. You will return to me if you remove your abhorrent idols from my presence and do not waver. Then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice and in righteousness. Then the nations will be blessed by him and will pride themselves in him. But this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. So again, we have this idea of coming out of the nations, not being contaminated by them. We have the mention of idols specifically. And again, we have this language of thorns. And again, we have punishment expressed in terms of fire regarding the destruction of the thorns. Now, let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28, verse 24. The house of Israel will no longer be hurt by prickly briars or painful thorns from all their neighbours who treat them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Okay, that's probably enough examples. I think that one speaks for itself after what we've already seen. There are more of these examples, but I think that's probably enough. So what we can see here is that the thorns are emblematic of hostile forces outside of the place where God is. In these examples, the immediate point of reference is the peoples of the nations outside of the land of God. So if we compare Israel with Eden, we can see that the land outside of Eden was full of thorns and the land outside of Israel is full of these hostile forces referred to as thorns. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. 
According to the worldview builder, Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, etc., which we commonly call the Divine Council worldview, these nations that are hostile to Israel are not just people groups or geographical references. The nations are represented by the gods that rule over them. And that means that certain Jewish authors are going to pick up on this language of thorns and apply it to cosmic powers over the nations in opposition to Israel. On a symbolic level, this kind of makes sense because the text of Genesis 3 tells us that the ground produces these thorns. In other words, they come up from underneath, from the realm of the dead, and they inflict pain and suffering on people. So where are we going to find examples of texts that use uh, this particular kind of imagery? How about the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen and onward? I repeat, let no one consider me a fool, but if you do, at least accept me as a fool so that I can also boast a little. What I'm saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were, foolishly. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone is arrogant toward you, if someone slaps you in the face. I say this to our shame. We have been too weak for that. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly. I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far more labours, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I'll boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I wanted to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I'd be telling the truth. But I'll spare you so that no one credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. 
So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. All right, so that was kind of a long passage, which really just serves to give you some context. This is Paul defending his ministry in the face of opposition from people claiming to be greater than the apostles of Christ. And his argument is that these people don't have any grounds on a fleshly basis to claim to be greater than him. But that doesn't matter because what makes him greater than them is, in fact, his weakness. Because it is through his weakness that Christ is able to work. So in order to shame these people who are claiming to be greater than him, Paul flips the narrative and starts boasting about the things he's suffered and the weaknesses that he lives with. And it's in this context that he mentions this thorn in his flesh, which he says in direct terms is a messenger of Satan. Now, I've heard all kinds of people saying things like, oh, this was Paul complaining about a stomach illness or this or that or the other thing. But nobody really wants to touch this as some kind of a divine being or some kind of demon or something, because the only point of reference that most people have for something like that is the idea of demonic possession, which we see in the Gospels. And nobody wants to say that Paul was demon possessed. Just so we're clear, I am not saying that either. But you don't need to be a bad guy or tangled up in some nasty stuff to be afflicted or tormented by the powers of evil. Look at the things that Job suffered at the hands of supernatural opposition. Very true, but we still have to answer the question, right? How is it that Paul describes the thorn as a messenger of Satan? One of the reasons that I read that whole passage from halfway through 2 Corinthians 11 and going halfway into chapter 12 is because Paul actually gives us a little context for understanding this. And for anyone familiar with Second Temple period literature, this would have been brought to mind, although it generally escapes the attention of modern Bible readers. Paul refers to the seed of Abraham in his boasting. You'll see it referred to as descendants in translations like the one I just read, but the Greek there is sperma, which is basically the Greek term for seed. So we have a direct correlation with the Hebrew term for seed, which is zerah. There is a text called the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is based heavily on the events of Genesis chapter 15, the story where Abraham is in a deep sleep. And God grants him a vision where Abraham is taken up above the stars and sees not only the whole world, but all of time as well. Jesus actually refers to this vision when he says uh, in John 8:56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Jesus agrees with the author of the Apocalypse of Abraham that this vision that Abraham had in Genesis 15 really occurred, and that in this vision, Abraham observed all of time from the beginning to the end. Most importantly in this vision, Abraham is taken above the stars, which means that he is granted a kind of higher access. Abraham is given a glimpse of what it is like to outrank the angels. Now remember that the stars are symbolic of these divine powers which govern the nations. And as I said before, the thorns were also representative of the powers over the nations. We talked before about the danger of over-literalizing here, and we have to remember that these are just symbols used to illustrate a point. They're not descriptions of physical, concrete realities. Instead, these are abstract things described in material terms. So if the serpent in the garden can be a sea creature in one chapter and a serpent in the other, that's not a problem. And likewise, the lesser Elohim, the sons of God, can be described as stars in one passage and thorns in another. And it's not contradictory. So Abraham in his vision gets elevated above the stars so that he can look down upon them. I think we've had discussions in the past about how the new sons of God, the faithful and allegiant followers of Christ, become like the stars. But the point here is that we have this notion that Abraham in this vision 
is given authority and therefore power over the stars. Before we get much further on this point, let me just go back to Paul and his thorn in the flesh. I read you a bunch of scripture references earlier, and the first couple of them were concerning people getting disciplined by means of the application of thorns. Paul, too, is using thorns as discipline because he speaks of his thorn in the flesh being given so that he would not exalt himself. So he recognises that there is a purpose behind the torment that he's experiencing. And this fits really well with what he's been saying about his sufferings. It also fits really well when we consider the book of Job, as I mentioned earlier, and the idea that discipline from God can come at the hand of supernatural evil. Now, if we pick up another Jewish text, this one is the Genesis Rabbah, which is essentially a rabbinic commentary on Genesis. We find that the rabbis built on these ideas as well. Here's an extract from chapter 12 of the Genesis Rabbah. And he, that is God, brought him, that is Abraham, forth without. This is a, a quote from Genesis 15. Rabbi Joshua said in Rabbi Levi's name, Did he then lead him forth without the world? That it says, and he brought him forth without. It means, however, that he showed him the streets of heaven. As you read, while as yet he had not made the earth nor the outer spaces. Rabbi Judah, son of Rabbi Simon, said in Rabbi Yohanan's name, He lifted him up above the vault of heaven. Hence he says to him, Look, that is Chabet, now toward heaven. Chabet signifying to look down from above. The rabbis said, or that God said to him, Thou art a prophet, not an astrologer. As it says, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, according to Genesis 20, verse 7. In the days of Jeremiah, the Israelites wished to entertain this belief in astrology, but the Holy One, blessed be he, would not permit them. Thus it is written, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, etc., that's a reference to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2. Your ancestor Abraham wished to entertain this belief long ago, but I would not permit him. Rabbi Levi said, while the sandal is on your foot, tread down the thorn. He who is placed below them fears them, but thou, Abraham, art placed above them, so trample them down. So we should have noticed there are a few things. Firstly, the reference to Abraham as prophet, which means that he has experienced in a vision the throne of God on the firmament, which is one of the ways in which a prophet was validated. So this vision that Abraham saw in Genesis 15 connects to some kind of a prophetic understanding of things. Remember that in the mind of an ancient Israelite, everything has this eschatological flavor, looking toward the future. Apocalyptic is not just a late development in Jewish literature. It's the worldview of God's people from the beginning. Secondly, we saw the reference to astrology concerning the way that the nations conducted divination. And the rabbis contrasted prophecy against astrology as being superior. But also in bringing up the nations, they connect that thought to thorns. So the rabbis have transitioned from stars to thorns as they contrasted the prophetic tradition against the astrological one. And they're basically saying that Abraham, as the prophet of God exalted above the stars, is now in a position to trample upon the thorns. And according to the apocalyptic worldview of Israelite thought and religion, that statement has eschatological ramifications. This is Abraham and all his kind, the seed of Abraham, God's faithful people, victorious over the thorns, who are the gods of the nations. This is day of the Lord kind of stuff. Wait a minute, what about the crown of thorns? 
that the soldiers put on Jesus' head at the crucifixion. Does that mean that Jesus became king over all the forces of evil then? Something like that. Actually, the word that gets translated as crown in the Gospels is Stephanos, which is the word for a wreath or garland awarded to the victor in a contest. So that would make Jesus victorious over the thorns, the rebellious sons of God who oppressed the nations and opposed God's people. I think that might be a good way to understand it. So let's bring this back to Genesis 3. God's telling the man that he's going to face opposition outside the garden, and it's not just going to be the difficulties of growing crops in the ground. Every attempt of humankind to cultivate some kind of good in this world is going to be met with opposition, and it's going to be expressed as discipline according to God's faithfulness to us. So we need to take a positive view of the hardships of life and remember that God, in his faithfulness, does all these things for our benefit, even if it doesn't feel nice experiencing it sometimes. We haven't yet got to the story of Abraham and the great hope that comes out in God's promises to him, but it's coming. And in the meantime, we just need to be faithful to our creator. That was uh, really interesting as always, Tim, but we'll have to wrap it up there because we have a giant answers Q&A segment. However, before that, I thought we might look at some of the positive feedback you've got for your book, Answers to Giant Questions, since we are, after all, celebrating two years since it came out on Amazon, which I believe means that the book is now able to walk on its own. I don't know. I don't have children. I don't know what they're capable of in two years. So let's uh, have some positive feedback right now. I'm just going to read out some things, so don't blush, Tim. If you have ever wondered about those giant men of renown or sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6, I highly suggest this man's book, well-researched and well-written. Loads of recognized canonical verses and historical written material from all tribes, lands, and tongues. Five stars from Sean Harris, Facebook. Thank you, Sean. All right. Thank you for being uh, canonical. That was novel. I'll take that on board. I'm going to put that in my vocabulary. (laughs) Uh, All right, next one. You know, there's too many to choose from, but these are just some of the highlights. The pun in the title says much about the rest of the book, which is written in an easy-to-read but fact-based way. It is a broad overview of Jewish history, the history of God's chosen people, which spans from Genesis and the OT to Revelation in the NT. Prophecy after prophecy is turned on its head, but also deepened and put in perspective. Big events like the Tower of Babel get new light on them, both through recent Bible scholarship and research of early Mesopotamian culture. For any reader that needs to connect the dots in ancient mythology and to see God's hidden salvation plan for all the world unravel in all its glory, this is a gem. Another five stars. It's fitting that we've been talking about stars because there's so many in your reviews. Um, that's from uh, Matt Salado. He is also a customer review from uh, Amazon, which is awesome. One more from Amazon. I would rate Answers to Giant Questions as a must-read for those interested in learning more about the gods of the Bible and the rebellious angels of Genesis 6 from the perspective of the Divine Council worldview that was held by the ancient Israelites and before. T.J. Stedman has a very readable and to-the-point style of writing that shows a deep understanding of the subject. I would rank this book up there with Mike Kaiser's The Unseen Realm and Ryan Peterson's Judgment of the Nephilim. It is good to see an Australian author come out with such a comprehensive and spiritually sensitive book on a subject that has been ignored for so long by mainstream Christianity. This book will increase your faith and understanding of God. Matt Wilson, again from Amazon, and another five stars. How do you feel, Tim? Well, there's some really great comments there. 
humbling. Um, it's, it's just so nice to get such positive feedback. But uh, as I said before, the glory goes to God for what this book has achieved. I'm just a guy with too much spare time in his hands and I want it to be useful in God's kingdom. So hopefully this book will continue to be beneficial to people in years to come. We should probably move on to some giant questions now before my uh, head inflates. What do you got for us, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. All right. Okay. So we have a question from Kevin. And uh, he wants to know if the Antichrist is actually aware of who he is. Interesting. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. I'm going to assume that if we're talking about the Antichrist here, we're talking specifically about the Antichrist as in the book of Revelation, rather than the spirit of Antichrist as spoken of by John in his letters as a general spirit of Antichrist that exists in the world through unbelievers. Even with that distinction made, we still need to clarify further because the Antichrist is more than just a man. We're talking about a person who embodies a supernatural entity, one of the fallen sons of God. He rises up in an attempt to take the place of Jesus Christ in Christian eschatology. Now, these divine beings are not mortals like we are. but They're still created and therefore not independent of time because they have a beginning and they are going to meet their end. So omniscience is not one of their qualities. That belongs only to Yahweh, the creator God. So they don't know everything. But is there one particular spirit that is destined to be the Antichrist? I think there is. And I think it's going to surprise people if they haven't read my book. A very common candidate for the Antichrist for many years now has been Nimrod. But I think that Nimrod really had no idea what he was doing when he released the spirit that we will later see as the Antichrist upon the earth. But we can track this entity through the ages, and his name is preserved in Scripture. His name is Gog. We're going to start with a quick reading from Ezekiel 38, and then I'm going to quote a short excerpt from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. So this is Ezekiel 38, verses 14 to 15. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, This is what the Lord God says. On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, Will you not know this and come from your place in the remotest parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, who are all riding horses, a huge assembly, a powerful army? Now, did you notice the phrase in 38.15, your place? It tells us that Gog's place is the Yerukar Safon, sides of the north, which Isaiah equated with Jerusalem as the Harmoed, the Mount of Assembly. This Antichrist comes from Jerusalem, the place where the divine assembly will converge with the physical world and goes out from there to amass his armies for battle. His coming from the convergence of the divine abode and the earth tells us something. Gog is not just a mere man, but a member of the divine council, one of the fallen sons of God. The purpose of God is revealed here, which is in itself interesting, even if only for the fact that poor Job never got such a clear explanation for his own sufferings at the hand of Leviathan. Yahweh intends to show himself as holy on the mountain of his holiness, to vindicate himself before the nations of the world. 
God declares that Gog is indeed the enemy that has been prophesied about repeatedly for many years, and as we have seen, most of the prophets touch on this, so it should not be a surprise. In fact, John's use of the definite article in the original Greek of Revelation 20 verse 8 reveals the Gog and Magog, which shows that John has already introduced Gog in the narrative when he spoke of the beast earlier in the Revelation. Now, that's the end of the quote from my book, and I'll just take you back to Revelation 20 and verse 8, which I mentioned there in that quote. Actually, I'll start at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Also, there's a footnote in the book, which is a reference to a paper that you can look up and read about this if you want more information. So I'll give you that if you want to look it up for yourself. And the author of the paper is Gary T. Manning. And he wrote this paper, which is entitled Gog and Magog, a new look at John's appropriation of Ezekiel. That's in the ETS, uh, November 2014, pages three to four. Uh, that's Evangelical Theological Society. So for me, that's straightforward enough. The biblical authors had a fair idea of who this entity is, and it checks out according to the research that I've done. The question that remains, though, is the human side of the equation. The Antichrist has to be embodied as a man in order to do the things that John describes in Revelation. But who could that man be? Given that this entity known as Gog has been around for thousands of years, it makes sense that he just chooses a person that he will be embodied in when it suits him. It's not going to be the same guy somehow kept alive for thousands of years. So I'm sure that Gog knows who he is, but his human host may or may not have the benefit of that knowledge. I don't think that you could identify a particular person and say, that's the guy, he's the Antichrist. At the end of the day, you'd be left pointing out a person, just an ordinary man, while the spirit, who is the Antichrist, just goes off somewhere else and leaves this guy holding the whole potato. So if you thought it might be possible to find this guy and kill him, that's not going to work. He's going to find another host. I think it's a bit of a pointless exercise trying to identify who that human host could be, though. It'll be revealed in its time, but we have more important things to worry about, such as embodying Christ in ourselves every day, because that is how we win. And uh, on that victorious uh, note, we'll end this celebration of the 50th episode of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions as always. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. 
production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken at gravesforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephanie on Amazon, and paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscom Read the blog, and us on the socials, and don't forget to subscribe to your friends for the show. Send us all your questions, and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, and God bless. So the lesson for the woman in this story is that <coughs> I'm going to cough randomly. A new look at John's appropriation. <coughs> A new look at John's appropriation of... <coughs> Still didn't get that. Thanks, mate. What's the occasion? There you go. Now it's a party. Well, you've got whiskey and I've got a chunky cookie. You can take a more masculine glass. Yeah, kids. So this is a milestone for us, eh? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we're celebrating. Congratulations to you. Oh, I should have. uh, I don't have anything. I had a non-alcoholic beer with dinner, but. uh, No, no, this this one's for you. No, thanks. And um, this one's for (laughs) me. Well, you deserve it because you're the one doing all the work. So uh, that seems <laughs> <laughs> about equal share of how much we actually contribute. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I should recommend this to you, this um, big dog. Oh, peanut butter whiskey. Uh, okay, are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Sounds like a uh, sounds like a um, a blues song or something. I got whiskey and tissues, bronchitis too.